Hello, everyone. Welcome to A Reason for Hope. Very glad that you're joining us. A Reason for Hope is an hour-long live broadcast, which is dedicated, for the most part, to your questions on the Bible. <laughs> Peter Snickers, as I say, for the most part. just depends <laughs> how long these guys chat away at the beginning. Uh, but you can send your questions in through our uh, multiple online social media platforms and the like, and I will be fielding those questions as they come on in, and we will get to those questions on the broadcast. That's what we're all about. So if you have questions on the Bible, maybe a passage of Scripture, maybe something even going on in your world that you'd like a biblical perspective or things going on in the world, maybe prophetic things, really any honest question, as long as you know we're delving into the Bible to find the answers to those. That's what we're all about here. My name's Dave Robson, and I will be hosting today and fielding those questions as they come on in, monitoring all those platforms there with us today. Back from back from the almost grave, Sean, <laughs> Sean Richards, how you doing? Are you well? Yeah, we're getting there. And the happier news, I might be getting a free watch soon. A free watch? How did that come about? Well, this government agency contacted me and said I'm on their watch list. Oh, <laughs> very nice. Very nice. I got that one today. I got that one. Sometimes I don't get them, but I got them. I like it. Pastor Peter Martin also with us. How are you doing? Doing good. You were also a little sicky over the weekend, weren't you? Yeah, a little sicky. I use that word too. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe with your... I had the sniffies. <laughs> <laughs> had a boo-boo. Boo-boo <laughs> tummy. <laughs> you're, you're a father of young children, so this is the, this is the vocabulary. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, they can't talk yet. No. And I don't infantilize my kids. I use, <laughs> I use medically correct jargon in my oh, home. <laughs> my apologies. I didn't mean to offend you with that at all, but <laughs> it's good to see you. Can't wait to see where we're going to go with the broadcast today. We get our sillies out in the, in the early part <laughs> and then get more serious as it goes. That's not true. Along. That's, not, that's <laughs> sometimes true. As I mentioned, uh, Reason for Hope uh, is an hour-long live broadcast. It's a ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson, Arizona. That's where we're broadcasting uh, from, Tucson, Arizona here. We're with you Monday through Friday from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time or wherever that is for you around the world. We have viewers literally around the world, which is very exciting, and you're all very welcome to be joining us uh, today. You can go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. If you go to that Watch Live tab that's right there, while you're at the website, check out the other links there. On the on To the right there of the yellow circle, you'll see the events page. We have so many groups, support groups, and uh, fun things, really groups for any any variety of person, <laughs> uh, Bible studies and all kinds of things. So check that out while you're there. Um, we'd love for you to not be a stranger and get involved uh, beyond the show here. But anyway, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Follow the Watch Live tab. That will take you to our uh, live page. When we're offline, you'll see a countdown to our next show uh, and also like a schedule of things coming up. Not only a reason for hope, but our regular services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. When we are online, you will see um, the video right there and you can sign in. Uh, with a username and be part of the chat there. The direct link is ccftucson.online.church or follow the link, as I said, from calvarychristianfellowship.com. On Facebook, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, search for that. You will find us there or facebook.com slash ccftucson. I'm sure you're familiar with Facebook. You can like and share, and we'd, we'd love it if you would share to your friends. We'd love to have more people part of the broadcast for them to be blessed and for us to reach them with the word. So don't forget to, to like and share and all that good stuff. We have an app as well for your mobile device, whether it's iPhone or Android or iPad. Uh, and even on Roku and Apple TV, we have a channel there. So search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, look for our channel or app, and you can download that. And that's another way that you can view the broadcast. 
on YouTube. Our channel is A Reason for Hope. So search for A Reason for Hope on YouTube. Look for that Calvary Chapel white uh, dove logo right there. And that's a great place to go as well if you miss a show or would like to catch up on the archive or a question you'd like to view again. And our services are there as well, archived. Uh, Sean here posts uh, the questions on each of the videos so you can see what we covered. So a great resource uh, to for yourself and to share around as well. And again, on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe and click the bell and, and share and all the good stuff to help us grow this ministry. We'd really appreciate that if you've been blessed by it. You can follow our senior pastor here, Scott Richards, who's usually with us Monday, Wednesday, Friday. He's on Twitter at ScottR4H, and he posts highlights from the show, and he posts commentary on, on uh, world events, news events, prophetic things. He gave a, a, a great uh, update yesterday, if you want to check out that archive on the earthquake that happened, and just how that relates to biblical prophecy. Very interesting stuff. A little bit scary, but also exciting, and calls for prayer as well. So follow along with Scott on Twitter for that kind of thing. Last but not least, our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope spelled out at gmail.com. If you're listening to us on the radio, you are listening to a pre-recorded version of our show, so we're not live, so to speak. Uh, so you'll want to use that email address, and we get to those on the show. Our next show, we'll get to those. And consider uh, some other time joining us on one of those live platforms and being part of the show live. Wow, I think I covered it all. Nailed it. I nailed it. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> the other day you said I needed practice and I nailed it. So yeah, I'm not being sarcastic at I'm all. I'm improving. 100%. <laughs> I don't get sarcasm being British, of course. Well, Peter, would you like to pray for us before we go any further on the show? We yes, always sir. like to pray and dedicate the time to the Lord. So yeah. Thank you. Let's do it. <laughs> Father, we love you so much and we're grateful for you. We thank you for all the wonderful things you're doing in our life and that your, your plan and your providence are at work within our world, no matter how crazy it might seem. I do pray for this time that um, as the questions come in, me and Sean would be able to address them in a way that honors your word and your truth, and that all those listening and participating in the show would be blessed as a result. We're grateful for you, God, and in your name. Mm. Amen. 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 Thanks for that. Well, usually on Tuesdays, you guys do a bit of an apologetics uh, moment. Do you have something you'd like to share Moment. with us? <laughs> yes. You're being very optimistic today. Oh. <laughs> Transcendental arguments for God's existence, or at least the first one. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the argument from what we would call transcendentalism is one that's been alive and well within Christianity and Judaism for many, many centuries, actually. Uh, and it's actually one of the most fundamental ways by which people encounter God. So. Uh, let me explain what that is, because most people don't use that vernacular. Uh, you may have heard of transcendental meditation if you're into the Beatles. <laughs> they got way into that. But uh, essentially what the transcendent is, is it was a concept in philosophy that there are things that go beyond the world or transcend our five senses, but that these things are in many ways more important than what we perceive with our five senses. So the writer of Hebrews words it in this way. Uh, this is chapter 11, verse 3. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So what he's saying is what we perceive with our five senses, what is alive and well within the physical material universe, is made up of, or in other words, supported by something that is unseen and invisible. There is a transcendent meaning to matter. That was something that was just taken for granted back in the ancient world. Now, what ancient man believed is that we were able to actually encounter the divine or encounter the uh, transcendent through participation in the physical. This is why ceremony was so important to ancient man. This is why they were so entrenched 
in the idea that we have to act out with our bodies the things that we understand in our minds. And as the idea or the concept of the transcendent started to fade from Western thought, really as a fault of Platonism, which I'm not going to get into right now, the concept became instead, well, the transcendent, what transcends the world, is actually what is real, and the physical universe is not real. It's an illusion that we have to escape in order to encounter the transcendent. So this is where you get into transcendental meditation, the idea of Eastern mysticism, in which I get out of my body, I get out of my five senses in order to encounter God. Now, what traditionally Jews and Christians have believed is that actually because our God framed the world, as the writer of Hebrews uh, words it, by his word, and that he upholds things by his wisdom, and we understand that the things that are seen are made of things that are unseen, the best way for us to actually encounter God, encounter the divine, is actually through his created works. This is a major argument for the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, in which he argues that all mankind, even those who have not encountered a direct revelation of God's word, uh, namely that which is presented to us through scripture, are still accountable to God because they do encounter his nature through the created order. So he says that even though they don't see the invisible creator, they do see his created work. And that created work speaks of the creator. So they are accountable to that. Now the three transcendental values are truth, goodness, and beauty. These are the things that we understand frame the invisible world and they actually make up the visible world. You can't encounter anything in reality unless you're encountering it through one of those vehicles. So even though they're completely immaterial, you can't see them. You can't see truth. You can see true things, but truth is a concept. You can't actually see it. Uh, you, you can understand goodness. You could practice goodness, but you can't actually touch goodness or quantify it. Uh, and same with beauty. It, they're all in that same category. But our encounters with these things that happen on a regular basis, they they transport us to a divine understanding. So this is uh, how one theologian put it. This is a guy named Sir Roger Scruton. He passed away a couple of years ago, and he would probably cringe if I called him a theologian, but a uh, Christian philosopher. And he said, anybody who goes through life with an open mind and heart will encounter moments that are saturated with meaning, but whose meaning one cannot put into words. Those moments are precious to us. When they occur, it is as though on the winding, ill-lit stairway of our life, we suddenly come across a window through which we catch sight of another, brighter world, a world to which we belong, but which we cannot enter. There are many who dismiss this world as an unscientific fiction. I am not alone in thinking it real and important. Now, this, this is true for virtually everybody. Virtually everybody is brought to God through some sort of an encounter with the transcendent. You have an experience or a moment that helps you understand. It transfixes your eyes above the natural world. It brings you, it calls you to something higher. It symbolizes something greater. So it's either you're moved by great beauty, or you're moved by love, or you're moved by goodness, or even you're moved by truth. But there is something that speaks to you that lets you know what I am seeing right now, what I'm perceiving with my five senses, is representative of a world that's far more real than this one. Mm. It is symbolic of something far more true, far more good, far more beautiful than anything I'm able to perceive with my five senses. And therefore, I, whatever it is, I'm going to orient my life towards it, and I'm going to seek it out. And that, begin, that, for many of us, is the first steps in our journey. 
there God can is freed up to give us a direct revelation of his personal nature. But usually most of us start, begin with this concept of the transcendent. We know that what we see on this earth, what we can actually interact with, is only a, a small fraction of what's really out there. We understand there's more to it than that. Now, this is such a powerful, uh, this is such a powerful proof of God's existence that secular atheistic philosophers have worked overtime to try to confound it. This is one of the major works that we see present in Western philosophy, starting in about, I would say around the, the 1800s. You really see a jump on people denying this, because what we see is that the primary motivator of man, the primary moving force of mankind, is the transcendent. We understand there's something greater than this world, and we're pursuing it with all of our might. Mm. This is why the vast majority of people are religious. So how do you take what, what is sometimes called the religious impulse and secularize it? Well, there are various people who have done uh, what I would call a, a good job, quote-unquote, in trying to explain this away. So I'll list off a couple. There was Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who said that the, the feeling of the transcendent was just a search in happiness. He believed that the primary motivator of man was just to be happy. And so when you feel as though there's something beyond the world, there actually isn't. Uh, actually, all you're pursuing is physical pleasure and a state of nature that brings you joy and satisfaction. Mm. Uh, Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, he said that, no, 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 what you're actually experiencing is just the will to power. You want to be more dominant than other people and other life forms. And so you think that you're experiencing something greater than the world, but you're really not. You're just experiencing greater aims and goals that will more unite you to what you want, and that is power. Yeah. Marx said it was money, uh, uh, Viktor Frankl said it was meaning, and various other thinkers have brought up other methods that they can explain away this feeling of the transcendent. Yeah. Uh, I think the most pervasive thinker in our culture right now is actually Freud. Freud articulated it in probably the quote-unquote best way for this worst ideology, and he said that <laughs> God is an illusion cast by the human intellect to understand our current basically present issues. And he says, what we're really after is sexual hedonistic pleasure. Mm. And so the reason why you feel it primarily in beauty and romance is because what you really want is just to have physical sex mm. and that's it. So all these illusions that there's something greater beyond it are a lie. Now, there are a couple of things I wanna point out in the loss of the transcendent. The first one is not only has it led people away from God, but it's led people away from the primary way that they encounter God. So there's, uh, I guess you could call them proximities towards God that people have. And this is what Paul is talking about in Romans 1. There are people that are in direct proximity to God, meaning that they've met him. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They've encountered the risen Savior, and they will be with him forever. Mm. Right? They have a relationship with him that is based upon faith that will translate into eternal life. Right? That, that's the primary way you have proximity with God. Everyone else that doesn't have that direct contact with God still experiences him through the true, the good, and the beautiful. Now, what these thinkers have done is they've reduced all these experiences, these amazing experiences down to your base desires. Mm. Now, what this has done is actually had two, two major effects. There's been more than that, but two major effects that have happened in our current culture. Number one, if you tell young people that all these experiences of the transcendent are simply your base desires trying to get out, and the best way that you could be your best self, is to express those desires in sexual liberation, mm. what can you expect 
but sexual confusion and mass hedonistic pleasure, right? right? And that's exactly what we're seeing in Western civilization right now, because mm. back in the day, what a parent would tell a child when they first encountered love, right? And you know, you're a parent, you're at, your kids are at the age where they're first experiencing love. Yep. Now, as a parent, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to sit down with them and say, yeah, love is a powerful thing. Mm. It's a wonderful thing. And it's something that was designed by God to help us understand his nature, mm. that we have these physical transcendent connections that speak to us of God's care and concern for us. Mm. Now, you may not articulate it that way. That's exactly what I told <laughs> my children. <Yeah. laughs> word for word, American accent and everything. Yeah. <laughs> but even though you wouldn't articulate it that way, you would still try to convey that basic message that, yeah, I'm not discounting the fact that what you feel right now for this girl or this boy is so amazing and you feel like it's your total life and that you your entire life is planned out now because you've encountered this person and you love them <laughs> with all your heart and everything is great and the relationship's going to last forever. I know you feel that yeah. and I'm not discounting it because it's real. What you're feeling is real. But if you're not careful, you'll ascribe it to a physical person yeah. as opposed to the transcendent God mm. and you'll turn that person into an idol and they'll break your heart, yeah. right? They'll destroy your feelings of the transcendent and they will actually cripple your romance, mm. right? Many cynical, nihilistic people are those that have actually superimposed these great, amazing, transcendent feelings into transient objects yeah. and they've been crushed as a result. Yeah. So uh, that's one thing. It's made people hedonistic, but the second thing is it's made people nihilistic. So every study that they've done in the last couple of years has shown a huge uptick in suicidal uh, ideation and practices and self-harm amongst our youngest. And I, I believe that there's reason for that. But I think this is one of the bigger ones, right? Once again, if you tell young people that there is nothing beyond your emotions other than what you can see, right? All of your encounters, all of your amazing experiences, yeah, they feel great, but they're nothing, right? They're mm -hmm. absolutely nothing that takes the wind out of their sails. It completely cheapens all of life's greatest experiences. So C.S. Lewis, who was converted to Christianity through the transcendent, right? Uh, eventually, probably me and Sean will get to his autobiography called uh, Surprised by Joy and explain how C.S. Lewis came to, to know God. But in uh, a series of essays that are entitled Present Concerns, he says this, the universe is a universe of nonsense, but since you are here, grab what you can. Unfortunately, there is on these terms so very little that you can grab, only the coarsest sensual pleasures. You can't, in the lowest animal sense, be in love with a girl if you know and keep on remembering that all the beauties both of her person and of her character are a momentary and accidental pattern produced by a collision of atoms, and that your own response to them is only a sort of psychic phosphorescence arising from the behavior of your genes. You can't go on getting any very serious pleasure from music if you know and remember that its air of significance is pure illusion. That you like it only because you like it only because your nervous system is irrationally conditioned to like it. You may still, in the lowest sense, have a good time, but just in so far as it becomes a very good, very good time, just in so far as it ever threatens to push you on from cold sensuality into real warmth and enthusiasm and joy. So afar, you will be forced to feel the hopeless disharmony between your own emotions and the universe in which you really live. Mm. So C.S. Lewis is saying that the, the experiences with the transcendent are so powerful that you have to actively suppress them 
in a secularistic worldview. Mm. You have to actively tell yourself there is nothing to this mm. but what my biology and my chemistry are telling me. There is nothing beyond the world. There's only my five senses. Yeah. And what he's saying is that this disharmony between soul and body is so pronounced that it actually causes a chasm within yourself. It causes a contradiction that is almost unbearable for the human mind to endure, right? So the rise, the, the serious rise and uh, growth in not only this nihilistic behavior, but I would even make the argument violent behavior is because mm -hmm. of the denial of the transcendent. Mm -hmm. once, you, once you tell people there's nothing more to these experiences but what you actually feel with your five senses, you have robbed them of the greatest joys of the world. Yeah. Right? So uh, beyond leading people away from God, which is obviously my chief concern as someone who is a pastor, mm. it also just robs people of meaning altogether, yeah. which I think is a far worse fate. Yeah. So yeah. any last thoughts or, or ideas on that? Let's just recap the argument. When we're talking about a transcendental argument for God's existence, we aren't saying God exists, fact number one. Fact number two, transcendental ideas and concepts come from God since transcendental ideas don't come from nothing, therefore God exists. That would be a horrible argument. The argument only needs the existence of the transcendental, which atheists, which Muslims, which pagans, which Christians all can acknowledge, all can experience, and all can interact with even though they have no actual scientific property behind them. And it is an important argument to keep on the backhand in case that there is a it's interaction you have with, say, most likely an atheist, uh, who would argue that the only things that exist are the scientific. And yet we can still recognize something as beautiful, recognize something as logical, recognize something as a non-material but influential and even passionate concept. They can try to dovetail this by saying, no, those are just chemicals. You're describing what happens with them, not them and other themselves. So note that point. But if these things, in fact, do exist, then you have to ask, since they're mental concepts, not physical properties, where did they come from? Who dictates this sort of influence over us that we would care about things like beauty, like courage, like, ins like anything inspirational, mm -hmm. anything logical? And the answer would be, not a transcendental reaction. You don't react to nothing. That's the circular issue. It's a transcendental mind. And if the mind is not only where these things take place for us, but also where they would come from, what mind would be able to influence all of creation in such a way where these things carry that kind of weight? Now, if you understand the argument properly, then we can avoid the rabbit trails of, well, here's my explanation for why we react this way as opposed to what they actually are. When it comes down to this being an argument for God's existence, we're not making a conclusive argument like the Kalam argument, for example, because this universe started, it had a starter. All we're arguing is that there is a conscious mind beyond and above and over all of nature. It's not the Christian God, it's not the Muslim God, it's not the Buddhist gods, it's the concept of God as a rational one because of these principles. And we'll go more into it as the questions in the broadcast unfold, but make sure that when you use these arguments, you don't 
A, think it proves more than it does, and B, know how to follow up on these conversations once they're properly understood. As an argument, the transcendental is an argument for the concept of God, not the identity of God. We Mm. need more information for that. Mm. But if you're talking to someone about these things, make sure that as you take the time to study it for yourself, you understand what exactly it's intended to prove, who this would matter to, and ultimately, as a follow-through, where to go from here. And my personal recommendation, if they argue the transcendental does in fact prove a mind above nature, is it just this like cosmic brain that's making everything work? No, then we take a step forward and go, what about the transcendental moment the apostles experienced where not only upon their seeing Jesus alive, risen from the dead, a historical claim, not just in realizing the God of Israel was revealed in Jesus of Nazareth, a theological claim, but that it would drive them all to be willing to lay down their lives, also a historical claim, as a result of seeing their God, theological claim, do the same thing, key detail, for you, for them. That's transcendental. That places a value on you on the cosmic level. It is the thing this world, frankly, needs to know not only that they're loved, but loved by someone whose opinion of them matters. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, would, I would just uh, slightly rephrase that. So <clears throat> the, the concept of the transcendental, when you're using it as an argument, it's not actually an intellectual, logical argument. It's an experiential one. So meaning that this particular argument is... Uh, in the realm of what we would call presuppositional apologetics. Okay. So uh, there, there's a branch of apologetics that deals with people have experiences that reflect what you find in Scripture because they live in nature, and God has revealed his existence through nature. And therefore, what you're all you're doing is trying to explain to people, you have these experiences. Let me give you a possible reason as to why you have these experiences. Let me give you a, a logical reason as to why these things exist and why they might point to something beyond this earth. Mm. Now, someone has to wrestle with that in their own heart. That's why it's called presuppositional apologetics. You're presupposing that this person has already had encounters with the divine Mm. through truth, goodness, and beauty, and you're just calling their attention to it. Mm. Doesn't it make more sense that these exist and you give them value and meaning because they actually mean something? That it's not an illusion, but it's real. And this is C.S. Lewis's point in Mere Christianity, where he says, uh, for every want in in nature, there is something that nature provides that fills the want. Mm. So a duck wants water, there's such thing as water. A baby wants food, there's such thing as milk. If I find in myself, however, a desire for something that nothing on this earth can satisfy, Mm. I must conclude that I'm not built for this earth. So that was the conclusion that C.S. Lewis came to. I'm experiencing the transcendent. The world doesn't give me a, a, a valid explanation for why these experiences are so important to me. So therefore, I reason up to the divine. Now, another interesting concept, and, and by the way, mere Christianity is all an argument from the transcendental. If you read the book, C.S. Lewis does not argue from science. He argues from our moral experiences. We have experiences with morality that points to a moral lawgiver. Uh, but one final thing I'll point out is that The concept that John produces within his gospel account, the idea that the word becomes flesh, is actually oriented towards this argument that the transcendental 
the word, the transcendent word, has actually become material. The immaterial has taken on material, mm. that God has introduced himself to us. So as Sean said, once someone wraps their mind around the transcendental, then you move them away from what we call the book of nature, right? Experiences in the physical world to the book of scripture. We say, okay, well, let's see if there is a God out there that's transcendent. Has he made himself known to us? Can we understand him? And that's where we get into the Bible, get into actual theology. Yeah. Great. Thank you for sharing that. Any, any more to add before we move on to some questions? Probably, but let's get to questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have so much, so much to share. Thank you. That's very fascinating stuff, and I hope that's helpful for you as well. Uh, we've got some questions coming in. Thank you for those. Question from Rose. Thank you for uh, hanging in there with us, Rose. I know you asked your question yesterday. You joined us again today and restated your question, which is a great tip that I gave. You need to <laughs> nag us sometimes. That's right. Um, so good job. Um, what does it mean that God will wipe away every tear in Revelation? The 21? Yeah, 21. Yeah. Um, will God take away sad memories in heaven or something else? Is this literal or symbolic? Yeah, we uh, approach this question from time to time. When people are dealing with grief, obviously the first and most natural reaction to pain of any kind is for it to go away. Yeah. So they can't imagine a heaven where they would want something not to exist. And then this idea and this assumption then builds up into eternity and saying that, oh, well, uh, of course, my heavenly state's not going to be so good because I'm still going to have these things. I can only imagine a heaven where I'm a stoic Mr. Spock and I, I just don't react to anything or don't care about anything anymore. And the opposite is the case. The three main ways we want to deal with this is obviously like the presuppositional approach, think in alternatives. And if it ends up being silly, consider another approach. But another important detail is just to look at the text itself. When we're talking about the idea of grief being something that can't exist in heaven, that mm. if by wiping away the tears, it means that there will be no more tears. Right. Obviously, there would be no need to write that passage. It could have just skipped right on to there will be no more pain because, mm. of course, grief and pain are the same thing, right? Wrong. Mm. If, on the other hand, I ask, oh, well, grief is uh, an aspect of sin. You, you don't sin in God's presence, and grief is a sin. Notice my assumption. Therefore, why would that exist? Well, does God sin? Because he certainly grieved. Mm. He certainly grieved in Scripture. He certainly grieved over us. He certainly grieved over the state of his creation. And if I understand that by nature that doesn't fit, mm -hmm. I have to take, again, another angle. What is the reason why we grieve, and what makes heaven different from mm. the way we grieve now? Mm. Again, read the passage. Revelation chapter 1, uh, 20, well, let's start in verse 1. I saw the first heaven and the first earth pass away, also there was no more sea. Then a loud voice from heaven said, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. Mm. God himself will be their God and be with them. Mm. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Mm. There will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, for the former things have passed away. Mm. So if I catch the picture, the one, and we say this often on the program, the one thing that makes heaven heaven is the fact that Jesus is there. Yeah that we have that fellowship with God restored that we lost in Eden. If I then ask the question, what makes grief so 
bad <laughs> here on this earth is that we oftentimes join with it a feeling of loneliness and isolation, mm-hmm. a feeling of being cut off or incapable of truly receiving comfort, and then the real issue comes into play. What is what I'll have there that I don't have here? Mm. Well, the thing I have here is grief, and the thing I will have there is also, note, the capacity for grief, just like God. But what is my reason? And B, what is my now lack of reason? What is my comfort? Mm. The answer is the presence of Jesus. Mm. So if I look at heaven from the lens of me, and all the wonderful things I get and I want, every desire will be fulfilled. We see that on internet comment sections all the time. Mm. Not the biblical definition of heaven by a long shot. Mm. But if on the other hand I'd say, I'm with Jesus, well, okay, I grieve, Jesus is there. Mm -hmm. I'm happy, Jesus is there. I have something to enjoy, I enjoy it with him. Mm -hmm. I don't have something, I have him anyway. Mm -hmm. That's the lens that we need to look at heaven through. So if I look at my grief from the lens of this world, apart from Jesus, at least in the physical sense, then I re-experience that loneliness, I re-experience that isolation, that taste of hell that this world will offer. But if on the other hand, I look at heaven and I realize every single moment of comfort, every single moment of consolidation, every sense of peace that I've been given in the midst of hurt Mm -hmm. is a echo, a shadow of the presence of Jesus, I then increase that to the infinite infinite degree. Mm -hmm. And I realize, yes, there's the infinite infinite degree. Suddenly, these things get put in proper perspective. Mm -hmm. What needs to be the focus of the Christian life needs to be the person of Jesus, not on my appeasement, because that's oftentimes what we struggle for in this life, the, I guess, sorting out, if not the elimination of quote-unquote bad emotions. Whereas in Scripture, we're told that even anger has a proper use, but the use of it is also God's character, and we haven't seen that in mankind. Mm -hmm. So... To answer the question, when it says wipe away the tears, it's not saying that we will eliminate the capacity for these emotions, that we won't be able to remember the things that will grieve us. No, we'll know as we are known. 1 Corinthians 13 describes that when we are fully mature, when we are fully grown, when we embody that love, we won't be loveless. Mm. We won't be incapable of displaying the emotions we were created to reflect by the image of God or through the image of God. But the whole purpose of them is now ultimately fulfilled because we have what we were created for. Grief, but not without hope. Mm. Pain, but not without the presence of Jesus. So then I ask the question, what makes heaven a state where there is no pain, there is no crying, there is no death? Because the presence of life, because the presence of the Isaiah chapter, Mm. comforter, Mm The presence of the one who will always be there. That's the reason. Yeah, it's beautiful. <clears throat> Everything in its perfect place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll just add one thing to it. So uh, when Sean's talking about the what potential crying or sorrow that we're going to experience in heaven, another key difference is that it won't be present. So uh, we experience grief and suffering on this earth because we live in a world that's filled with death, sorrow, and loss. Uh, heaven is not a place that we're going to experience any of those things. Mm. So it's, it's possible, as Sean said, that we will carry over grief and sorrow that is present in our current lives, right? So in other words, 
it will exist in memory, but it won't exist in presence. And that's a very different thing. So uh, God erasing, uh, as Sean put it, if God were to erase all amounts of sorrow, he would have to erase all memory mm. of, our, of our current lives because our lives are filled with suffering. Mm. And we don't believe that God's going to do that. In heaven, we also don't believe that there will be loss, but the current loss that you're experiencing will still have will still redound in heavenly places. Mm. So, uh, to put it another way, if God were to erase all memories of suffering when you got into heaven, that might sound good, but it also makes your current suffering meaningless. Mm. Uh, the only way that it becomes meaningful is if there is a consolation and comfort that transcends your current circumstances and moves you into greater comfort in God. Mm. So, uh, the best example we have of this is the cross itself. Right? The resurrection cannot happen without the cross. The redemption of man cannot happen without the cross. Mm. I bet you that if you were to ask the disciples the day after the crucifixion what their, what their most terrible day they had ever experienced was, they would definitely say the crucifixion yeah. of our Lord. They loved Jesus more than anyone. They'd seen him do amazing things. They'd lived with him for three years. They loved him more than anyone else on the planet. To see such a man tortured and killed in front of them would have been the most traumatic experience anyone yeah. could experience. The, the only innocent man in the world, the only relationship you could ever have where that person never hurt you mm. and only loved you and only cared for you, to see that person die would be the worst possible reality you could live through. Yeah. And yet, if you were to ask them 20 years after the resurrection, what was your least favorite day? They would say, well, my least favorite day was also my favorite day. It's the crucifixion. There's a reason why we still, to this day, Christians celebrate what we call Good Friday, mm-hmm. right? Why do we call it Good Friday that we're celebrating the day that Jesus was crucified? Well, because Good Friday is followed up by Resurrection Sunday. We, mm-hmm. re- we remember that you can't have the resurrection without the cross. And so therefore, all memory is hollowed in God's economy. Because God has done what he has done, everything that we have suffered on this world will have eternal consequence in heaven. Mm. It's not meaningless. There is something that is being filled up for you in your current circumstances. This is what the Apostle Paul means in 2 Corinthians 4, where he says, for we do not lose heart. Uh, Though our outward man perishes, our inward man is renewed day by day. Mm. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Mm. For we don't look at the things that are seen, but we look at the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporary. The things that are unseen are eternal. Yep. So he's not saying that just, hey, you're having a tough life now, but don't worry, heaven's coming. Yep. He's saying, no, 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 there, there's some sort of a, we don't understand it, but there is something that God is working out in your suffering that will have eternal consequence. So yeah. that's another dis- uh, beautiful distinction within our, suffer- uh, our sorrow in heaven. Yeah. is that it will have perfect consolation and understanding. Yeah, great stuff. And I love it. Once again, Sean, you, you brought that up quite a few times over you know, the last months about just being with Jesus. That is the point of heaven, being with Jesus. And I'm just struck by how you know, I want to experience that today, like that be my motivation. And it should be you know, that, that it's because of Jesus that Jesus is, I mean, he is with us, you know, but that is the, that's the purpose, that's the foundation, yeah. that's the motivation that, we are with Jesus, we're serving him, and of course it would be much more apparent in heaven, so to speak. Yeah. But yeah, great. Thank you for sharing those things. Rose, great question. Thank you for that, for hanging in there with us. Hope that helps you out. Uh, question from Robbie has a two-part question. First part, he asked, when evangelizing, how should I go about teaching someone the law of Moses? He shared a bit about um, someone who's a new believer. 
and he wants to teach them about the the law of uh, Moses, but not sure how to uh, teach that. Does the you know the the Ten Commandments does that have a place for us? You know, post Christ on the cross, um, is there for a new believer? How do we convey that? What's the worth of that? What's the value in that? Well, I think anything post cross should be with the cross. Yep. I was asking, does this point me to Jesus? And the best place for Exodus twenty, that's the Ten Commandments, is the idea that. Well, basically, Paul's point in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Mm. So if uh, you want a good resource on this, someone who's very much experienced in using this, not just among non-believers, but fellow believers, uh, we recommend The Way of the Master with Ray Mm. Comfort. Uh, He has a form of uh, basically a street evangelism and presuppositional apologetics that uses the moral assumption that people all have, that I'm basically a good person, and then defines it from the biblical worldview, and then asks, if you were to take this seriously, do you think you'd stand right before God or not? And then, again, based off of the presupposition, they would care about this all-knowing being and his, well, I guess moral standards not being a grade on the curve, because that's part of the goals of presuppositional apologetics to show that according to your own rules, you're, you're being silly. That uh, He's very good at that. Uh, he does the Ten Commandments a lot. Our uh, lead of evangelism, one of our uh, senior pastors, Uvaldo Martinez, he uses this a lot in our outreach on Friday nights. Mm. I take a different approach, but I'm weird. So uh, when you're talking to someone, obviously it does have a place. Just make sure that it doesn't end there. It continues to the cross. Right. But understand the purpose of the cross was understanding in light of the law. And Paul makes this argument in Romans. The author of Hebrews makes it, and it's throughout the New Testament by the law is the knowledge of sin. Yeah. So if the knowledge of sin is the law, then what redeems us before God? Our obedience to the law or the fact that apart from the law, no flesh shall be justified in his right. sight? Romans 3 is a great one to commit to memory in light of that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything to add? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, just two things. Uh, the first one is I just want to add a little something to what Sean just said, and then I want to uh, take, I think, the second part of the question, which is how do you teach a new believer? So the uh, difference between like teaching someone who doesn't believe versus someone who's right. new to Christianity and, and what role the, the law of Moses holds, holds for them. Yeah. So uh, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man, he points out that in all societies that he was able to, to uh, research, they have a version of what you would call the Ten Commandments contained within so the idea of thou shall not murder, thou shall not covet, thou shall not commit adultery, thou shall not bear false witness, right? All of these thou shalt nots are present within all these various cultures. So mm-hmm. uh, when Ray Comfort and them are, are coming to people and they're talking to them about the law of Moses, fine, throw out the Bible, right? Meaning you don't have to go to Scripture. You just say, do you think that murdering people is good, right? right. And, the, and so if you, if you agree that murder is bad, then you can just follow that up with an understanding of, okay, if murder is bad, then the things that precede murder must therefore be bad, mm. right? Because murder doesn't just happen in a vacuum, right. right? There's anger and hatred and things like that. Are these things good? Mm. And then once people admit to that, what you're trying to show them is that even by your own conscience, you're condemned. Right. And then that moves you into a, a need for the cross and an acceptance of forgiveness. Now, as a Christian, right? So if you come to God on that basis and understand I'm forgiven, for what I've done, I've been set free from the law of sin and death, and now I'm in God, I'm in Christ, I'm a new creation, 
well then what role does the law of Moses have? Now, we say the law of Moses, what we're talking about is the law given to Moses, right? Moses didn't make it up. But another thing that's important is that we are talking about more than just the Ten Commandments. We are talking about actually 613 Old Testament commandments. Mm. So this is, this is a little bit more complicated, and it's one that does need to be explained to new believers because oftentimes, as a new believer, you may not want to go into the Old Testament because it's very complex and it's difficult to understand, and it takes a lot of research, actually, to comprehend the historical context and why these things are being written and things like that. So what you have to do is you have to help someone understand that the law of Moses is actually broken into a couple different components, including, by the way, the Ten Commandments. So there's what you would call, you have to remember the law of Moses encompassed not only the moral expectations of God, but also uh, encompassed the judicial expectations of God and the ceremonial mm. expectations of God. Mm. All those are contained in the law of Moses. So by moral, I mean there are broad ethics that pertain not just to the Israelites, but to all people and all time, mm. from which we get this idea of guilt for sin. So things like when you read in the law, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's not specific to Israel. That's everybody. Mm. But there's also judicial elements of the law, where remember, God is building a nation, and that nation needs to have a government, and that government needs to have laws, mm. right? It needs to have a judiciary. So uh, that's why we call it the book of Leviticus, right? It's for the Levites, the mm. people who are uh, the, the spiritual, you call them almost the spiritual legislators of their community. And uh, they, they had many roles other than that, but that, that was one of the things that they were responsible for. So. When you read in the in the law things like what happens when your donkey kicks someone in the face and you knew that it was a donkey that kicked people in the face, like what happens to you? Or you didn't know uh, that it was that kind of donkey, like what <laughs> happens to you? And you might read that as a Westerner, like well, I don't own a donkey, you know, like I don't I don't know how this pertains to me. Well, that was a judicial law. That was something that pertained to the nation of Israel. You're not a member of the nation of Israel. Our new covenant is not built around boundaries or borders of a particular nation. And it's also not built around ethnicity. So those parts of the law were no longer held to. Now, it doesn't mean you can't get good wisdom from it. Right? So you read that and you might say, well, I don't own a donkey. Yeah, but what do you own that could cause people harm? And are you understanding mm. of the danger that these things have? Like you have a car. Do you understand how dangerous that vehicle is? Do you understand the responsibility that you undertake when you sit behind the wheel? Mm. Have you really taken that into account? Right. So that's the way that you would maybe apply that to modern mm. day. But you, you wouldn't follow it just, <laughs> just verbatim. Right. And then you, you have ceremonial stuff. And ceremonial stuff would be like the ceremonial washings that they would do before entering the temple, uh, how you go from a state of ceremonial cleanliness to ceremonial uncleanliness. Uh, th this would be the kosher laws, things like that. Yep. That was specific to, again, the old covenant, right? Mm -hmm. you, you had to understand your uncleanness before God and the, necess the necessity of holiness Right, so it is actually important to explain to new believers yep. why this component of the law was so valuable is because in you know the West today, we're like, well, of course I can enter into God's presence. Well, yeah, yeah, you can, <laughs> but there was something... Don't make it so yeah, cheap. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. Not, it's not like a, a, a small thing yeah. that you could enter into God's presence. It, it wasn't a, a small thing that the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6 that you are the temple of God. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Right. Right to enter into the temple was was serious business. Yep. Right, you had to be clean. You mm -hmm. you there was a big understanding that humanity is unclean before God, mm -hmm. and God is being very gracious <coughs> to allow people to come anywhere near Him, and they had to have various rituals in order to symbolize 
their understanding of their unclean state and their necessity for God's clean cleansing acts, and that would yeah. be the sacrificial system. So uh, don't be so... It's important to explain that to people so that they have a understanding of what Jesus purchased for us, right. the holiness of God, and our need to be cleansed in order to enter into his presence. So um, th- it's, it's definitely not an easy conversation, for sure. Right. I think that it might be several conversations, but it's one that I feel like new believers need to to grab over yeah. time. Okay, this is what this is why you have that big chunk of your Bible called the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. This is what it's for. It all points to Jesus. Let's explain how. Right? It's it's very uh, important to us today. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. And like I said, the perp- the purpose of the the law. I think of Galatians, right? That talks about the purpose was to be our tutor. Yeah. You know. Um, so you're right. I mean, uh, I think back to becoming a Christian, and I didn't know you know that stuff too. <laughs> yeah. And just it gets deeper when you when yeah. you realize that like, you you know the holiness of God, which we've lost um, from being born. In this era, so but so great, great question, Rob. Um, and his follow up, the second question, the concept of repentance. How mm-hmm. to explain the concept of repentance? Um, again, his his uh, friend is in a relationship, and um, they both have a past. You know, they've both saved, but have a lot of things in their past, and probably things that are still going on. I remember too when I became a Christian, things still move in some of those old ways. You know, so how to explain and maybe lead someone in the concept of repentance? We outlined it fairly regularly here, a change of mind that results in a change of life, which Mm -hmm. results in a change of heart. Mm -hmm. Obviously, repentance, the word, the ontology of it all, is literally to do a 180. It's to change direction, specifically in the mind or mindset. So if we ask the question, what am I changing to then? The basically black and white of the issue is, the purpose for what I do in life and why could be Jesus or not that. And if I then say, okay, I'm repenting from that, it's saying I'm instead going to say, what does Jesus have to do with this? And if it is some, you know, goings on in life that is dishonoring to him, then obviously a repentant attitude towards that is going to look at that and go, I don't see a lot of Jesus in this. Maybe I need to take a step back. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I'd say, you know, forget Jesus. I would rather do this because it's more fun. This is usually where you expect the pastor to say, and that shows that your salvation was illegitimate and so forth. No, give yourself time to grow because when it comes to a newborn heart, a newborn life, we don't expect a lot from them. They just kind of need to take in better nutrition than what they were used to (laughs) and grow. If you give them the opportunity and you understand the Holy Spirit's a lot better at changing their minds than our witty arguments, it's going to accomplish a lot more in the long run. Just make sure that when you're talking to this person, you A, understand and treat them just like you would in a physical sense, a newborn infant, but spiritually. Give them time to grow. Also understand that as you're giving them these opportunities to learn new lessons, you take those to heart yourself because that was Paul's observation to Timothy, at least, in teaching these things. You'll not only save others, but yourself as well. Sometimes you and I need to be reminded of the basics. But that's ultimately what we take away from this, is repentance, a change, altering, a redirecting of yourself and your mindset towards, instead of not Jesus, to Jesus. And that's something that we do every day. I think it was uh, Spurgeon who said, birds fly, fish swim, Christians repent. It's just what we do. Mm. Yeah. And the patience that goes along with that. Yeah. Anything yeah. to that, Peter? Uh, yeah, but we're running out of time. Let's move on. <laughs> All right. That sounds good. We can get, grab another get question. get to more, man. Yes. 
Let's cram them in. Uh, Yari, how you doing? Good to see you. Thank you for your question. Um, will more evidence bring people to Christ? This is a great question. Will more evidence bring people to Christ? Uh, he has a friend who says um, if they discover the ark, he will put his faith in Christ. So is it more evidence that no. people yeah, need or is it something else? Well, as we read in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3, it is the abundance of evidence that leads a man to repentance, right? Mm. I don't think so. No. no. It says <laughs> by the Spirit of God, yes. we call Jesus Lord. So if the Holy Spirit's the one that's going to call people to repentance, that Romans 2, I think verse 4 says, that is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Mm. The person who says more evidence will keep saying more evidence. The person who says not good enough will continue to say not good enough. Yeah. Even the person who says that will be good enough will continue to say that is now going to be good enough. Yeah. And then that will be good enough. Mm. And if God appears to me, that will be good enough. Yeah. Now, it, this is the reddest of red flags. If someone comes to you and says, well, if you prove this to me, then I'll, I'll be a Christian right now. Call their bluff. You can join us in our cynicism, if you will. But the fact and the reality is that when people make these sort of red herrings and say, oh no, what about that over there? The core claim of Christianity, this is the fundamental issue, is not that Noah built an ark, survived 40 days and 40 nights through a global flood, and then as a result of the cessation of God's uh, conflict, the earth was then repopulated from him and his three sons. The Christian, the Christian faith claims that, but it's based on, the truth of that claim is based on the reliability of two people, Moses and Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth also affirmed Moses, so let's just go to the big man himself. If Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead and you're talking to someone who genuinely and sincerely wants evidence for that, that is something that you can prove. Mm. That is something that you can discuss. That is someone you're talking to that can actually get somewhere as far as the truth claims of Christianity or not. But if you've spent any time sharing your faith, I know those listening have some experience, Yari, I know you do too, if you encounter this kind of person that seems like a live one, but keeps diverting the attention away from the real issue at hand, mm. it's not going to go anywhere. Get the conversation back to Jesus, or just note it's not going to be worth your time, because I guarantee you the next that they come out with the evidence for the ark tomorrow, the topic's going to change. I guarantee it. Yeah, I would just say, um, as Sean's talking about, with with anything, you, when you enter into a conversation with someone, you don't know where they're coming from. You don't know if they're ready to hear the answer. You don't know if they're really sincere in their question, things like that. So we always approach people and treat them as if they're sincere and as if they can be convinced. Otherwise, what's the point in talking to them? Now, as Sean said, the majority of people that you run across that are demanding more and more evidence, they're doing it not because they actually want to know the truth, but because they want to convince themselves that they're a seeker of truth and they actually justify their willful ignorance. So that, that is accurate, that is correct. But we have to assume, we have to presume on the ability of people to be reached. Otherwise we grow far too cynical and mm. we stop engaging with people. So when you, when you talk to someone, always presume that they can be reached and maybe even presume that, mm. hey, you don't know what's going on in that person's life. Maybe they're not ready right now, but maybe they will be. So there's no reason in, in just talking to someone and saying, okay, well, well you're not ready. You know, we're not salespeople. Uh, we're, we're, we're Christians. We're followers of Christ. We love the world as he loved the world. And we're there to help people understand God. So uh, if, if we can, try to enter into a relationship with people like that mm. and continue to communicate with them. 
So, and, and you'd be surprised on what kind of ends God will provide. Like right now I'm, I'm in a long form dialogue with someone who's an Orthodox Jew about abortion and will it lead to him coming to faith in Jesus Christ? I don't know, but you know, he wanted me to watch a documentary about the life and resurrection of Jesus. And I did. And now we're talking about that. And who knows, you know, is he, is he sincere? Will he actually be converted by particular facts? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. But it's not my place to understand or presume his heart. It's my place to be as sincere as I can in my dialogue with him and hope and pray that the Holy Spirit moves in his life and that he agrees to participate in that movement by faith. Mm. Right? That's, that's what we're there to do. And who knows? It might be a piece of evidence that's been hanging him up, why he won't take that step and embrace what God is calling him to do. Yeah. So we're, we're just not sure, and we, we just walk in faith, and we trust in what God's going to do in someone's life. Yeah. Amen. Scott was sharing about that uh, recently last last week from the the pulpit about being watchmen, mm-hmm. and um, he said, you know, if we if we grow indifferent to the salvation of people around us, then we're not being the watchmen that God has called us to be. And it really just struck me. And like you said, I don't remember how you phrased it, but just being ready, you know, being aware of those people around you that you don't you don't know, um, you know, if God's going to use you in that. And I mentioned yesterday about going to the dog park now i have a dog i go to the dog park most days across yeah. the street and it struck me the other day this is a mission field i mean i'm making friends with people you see the same people not only the dogs but the humans um dogs are well, saved mission dogs are saved already <laughs> but uh, being aware of that you know that that's that could be my my purpose to be a watchman there and to be ready to share you know in and out of season all that well peter thank you sean thank you great show today we'll be back again same time same places tomorrow god bless you thank you for being part of a reason for hope. Have a wonderful evening. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.